0: Hello and welcome to QIC's QPod, our investor podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC. And each Friday, we're inviting our listeners to take five minutes out of their day and tune into QPod to get the latest economic update and insights from our in-house economics team. Having an in-house economics team certainly not only strengthens our thoughtful approach to long-term investment strategies, but it also makes some really interesting conversations around our virtual corridors. And today, I'm really pleased to welcome our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, who has the challenging job of not only translating reams of constantly changing data to help our investment managers, our state investment office, but also our clients understand the likely future economic courses. Matthew, welcome. Hello, Craig. Good to see you. I am a little intrigued, and maybe I could start by asking you, uh, is this health and financial crisis proving to be one of the more difficult periods to be an economist in your experience, Matthew, or is it too early to tell, or perhaps it, we're just simply living in the moment of another event that seems to come around every decade or so?
1: No, it, it's it's difficult. Uh, I thought I'd had my once-in-a-lifetime experience with the uh, GFC, but uh, COVID is certainly... Uh, a crisis that is, I think, even more testing than uh, than the GFC. COVID is fundamentally a health crisis rather than a credit crisis. And what has been important in modelling the current crisis has been the epidemiology of the disease and the sector-by-sector sector response uh, and policymakers' responses on top of that. So it's multifaceted. Um, where the lessons of the GFC have been important, though, is an understanding in understanding and predicting, particularly central bank and government policy responses. For example, we've seen a coordinated and swift response from central banks, including the RBA, in terms of lowering interest rates and uh, injecting liquidity, so that we've avoided pretty much a credit crunch to date. Um, because of the GFC global monetary response, uh, that experience sort of made it easy for us to predict and to model what central banks were going to do, including the impact on bond markets and the support that you know large-scale liquidity injection provides to uh, equity markets. Uh, so, so looking back to some extent, we we do get some insights. Another, um, because of the health, because it's a health crisis. Another uh, look back that's important, I think, is to the influenza pandemic of 1910, and that really taught us the need to respect the epidemiology of the disease because a key feature of the flu pandemic was the devastating second wave of infections that were far more damaging and lethal than the original outbreak. Um, So we think that until a vaccine is found, the epidemiology will extend the period of economic recovery and that'll work against a quick V-shaped return to pre-COVID economic conditions. Until we find a vaccine, Cluster outbreaks will occur from time to time as we open up the economy, such as we, you know, Victoria is currently experiencing with the McDonald's outbreak down in Melbourne. And these sporadic cluster outbreaks will, will put a speed limit on the pace of economic reopening. If these cluster outbreaks are ignored, of course, then, As we saw in the the flu epidemic of the early 20th century, the risk of a second wave of reinfection rises, which could lead to a a second lockdown, which would be devastating for the economy. In Australia, at least, I think that uh, governments are acutely aware of this scenario, and that'll cause them to respect the epidemiology, and therefore, I think, adopt a fairly conservative approach to reopening the economy.
0: Yeah, it really puts us into a, an interesting uh, juncture right now, doesn't it, Matthew, with regards to we're just starting to introduce uh, more socialisation uh, across the state. So we're really sort of at that interesting point in time where we're really facing the potential for those face to uh, outbreaks, as you mentioned. So vigilance is the order of the day. Um, can we maybe move forward with regards to um, our PM yesterday announced that whilst we've had some early wins with our battle with the COVID The war rages on. He delivered a really sobering um, update with regards to the Australian Bureau of Statistics um, releasing that um, around 600,000 jobs have been lost in the past month alone, pushing our unemployment rate up to 6.2% from 5.2%. I know when we look across to other um, countries like the US where we're sitting at 14%, we're looking very, very strong compared to that. We also had the Treasurer, um, Josh Frydenberg, then update to say that Australia never experienced an economic shock of this size. Matthew, I want if to be able to test these labour market updates and really understand whether we're getting the complete picture or should we really be preparing for worse news as lower, un- lower participation rates, rather, or dare I say it, uh, you know, unemployment being masked by a JobKeeper, for example. Are we seeing the true impact at the moment through these figures?
1: Well, Craig, the, the labour market data that we it was released last week is the most comprehensive view we have to date of on, on the impact of uh, COVID on the economy. Um, and we're used to looking at the unemployment rate as a key sign for how the economy is performing. But currently, uh, that measure, as you suggested, is, is understating the impact. Even though the uh, unemployment rate rose by just a percentage point, Employment, the number of people that left jobs, employment dropped by 600,000 people, roughly, which is actually around 5% of the labour force, not 1% of the labour force, which is what the unemployment rate rose. And the reason why um, there was you could drop 600,000 people out of the labour force and have the unemployment rate only rise by 1% was because these people were actually dropping out of the labour force. That means that they, as you suggested, it means that they were actually not looking for work and therefore weren't counted amongst the unemployed by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. If they were counted as unemployed, then the unemployment rate would have been closer to 10%, not 6.2%. On top of this, there are currently around 700,000 workers who are working who are working zero hours or not working basically who have been stood down by their businesses because there's no work for them at the time, but who are receiving JobKeeper payments. Now, people who are on JobKeeper payments are also not counted in the official unemployment rate by the ABS. If we include them, as well as those that dropped out of the labour force, the unemployment rate would, in fact, probably top 15%, closer to the sort of numbers that you cited that we're seeing in the US. So the question is, like, how worried should we be about this? An un- well, to put it into perspective, again, um, as you alluded to in your opening remarks here, an unemployment rate of 15% is something that we have only seen before during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, but the good news is I don't think we're in a depression just yet. Hopefully we can avoid a depression. The reason for that is, firstly, we expect those... Uh, workers who are on JobKeeper payments that have been laid off uh, or or stood down, I should say, um, will quickly return to the uh, workforce once businesses start to reopen, which is starting to happen gradually now. And we think we'll gain momentum um, uh, throughout uh, the uh, September quarter. So we think that uh, many of those workers, if not most of those workers, can be reabsorbed back into employment um, by the December quarter of this year however offsetting that even as the unemployment rate growth picks up and those those people are reabsorbed into the labor force um, the the that will encourage people to come back into the labor force and look for uh, work now one of the reasons why a large number of people stopped work looking for work was because those people that are on job seeker payments that's unemployment benefits um, they were no longer under the usual um, Services Australia mutual obligation requirements, which usually requires you in order to get unemployment benefits, job seeker payments, to show evidence that you have sought employment. So with, without that mutual obligation, without really much hope of um, finding a job, a, a number of, a large number of people, we believe, who are on job seeker payments, who sh- uh, um, actually, when they responded to the ABS's survey um, f- uh, for un- the unemployment survey, said that they weren't looking for work and therefore they weren't um, they weren't uh, counted amongst the unemployed. Now that suspension of the mutual obligation uh, condition expires in uh, the first of. June of this year. And at that point, we can expect those people to start looking for jobs again. And so the participation rate will go up, and the unemployment rate, therefore, will go up as those people come back in and are counted amongst the unemployed. Sort of netting those two effects out, I think we'll see the unemployment rate climb to around 10% uh, through throughout uh, the rest of this period and oh, sorry throughout uh, the, f- the third quarter and probably stay there around the fourth quarter until we start to get the economy uh, slowly grinding higher again and absorbing the people that have uh, been made unemployed during this period of the COVID.
0: So it sounds like in some ways then, Matthew, Job Keeper is uh, a success. Um, and you did mention in your answer then that you don't see this as being a, uh, an environment for a depression at this point in time. You also mentioned earlier the threat of clusters and these second waves. So, perhaps to put you on the spot a little bit here, is it too early for you to give us an insight into what you think the Australian economy's outlook will be? Or are we too? Is it too early at this point in time to call it out? Or do is it enough data here for your economic history to sort of and, and modeling background to provide us a forecast?
1: Well, I think you can provide a forecast certainly, and and really any view that you have on the economy at all. Uh, is really, in essence, a forecast. So our our central case is that uh, we will get a recovery um, starting roughly from around now as we gradually reopen the economy. And as those industries in particular, the service sectors, um, start to be reopened, we will see a a bounce in in economic growth. So we still don't have even the first quarter uh, Australian national accounts data out with us, so we don't even know yet exactly what happened in the first quarter to Australian GDP, let alone the current quarter's GDP. But our, our analysis, when we just look at those sectors, um, such as accommodation uh, and food services, retail, hospitality and tourism, uh, when you look at the closures of those sectors that has occurred, that already adds up to a hit to GDP over the first half of this year, somewhere between 10 and 12 percent, a really unprecedented level of uh, decline in in, uh, in Australian GDP. But as we reopen the economy uh, currently and into the third quarter, we will see a bounce. Uh, so it's pretty pretty safe to say that we will get a a, a relatively uh, you know moderate recovery in the third quarter, we think of somewhere between about four to five percent. But that still leaves us a long distance, a fair way below our pre-COVID levels of economic activity. And as I said, the, uh, the requirement for social distancing, uh, the requirement to respect the epidemiology of the virus until we get a, a vaccine will mean that it will be a slow uh, uh, a slow sort of recovery until probably sometime in the second half of next year, when hopefully a vaccine's found and it's rolled out uh, to not just Australia but the rest of the world. So our central case forecast is on a on an average annual basis is for a drop of five over five percent in GDP in uh, the current financial. Uh, the current uh, calendar year of uh, 2020, followed by a recovery of around about uh, between 4 and 5% in 2021. However, by the end of next year, even with a, a reasonable uh, rebound in economic activity uh, towards the second half of this year and into next year, that's still not enough to recover to our pre-COVID uh, levels of economic growth. We expect GDP, the level of GDP, to still be around 4% below uh, where it otherwise would have been pre-COVID by the end of next year, and the unemployment rate still to be somewhere around 7%.
0: Thanks, Matthew. I want to pick up a couple of things you mentioned. Your response just then. You you talked about some of the industries which are going to be important for Australians' recovery, um, and that being, you know, areas like hospitality and tourism. Uh, obviously, you know, when we look back at some of the previous um, stressed events we've gone through, such as the GFC, Australia's experience was very muted compared to some of the other nations globally because we rode that China demand. Uh, to support our economy very quickly and claw back to be seen as a really strong and resilient economy. So over this COVID period, of course, we've now started to see some other factors play a hand here in the geopolitical space and a major wild card, perhaps starting with the OPEC plus disputes having a really imp- heavy impact on the front-end contract for WTI in the oil space. And now, of course, we've got uh, the Australian government and the Chinese governments um, sort of um, being a little bit of tension leading to our beef... Um, imports being restricted through the top four abattoirs, of course, being banned, and then we saw a rather large tariff increase in barley, up 80%. Does China remain this key source of economic recovery for Australia, Matthew? And is there a sector in our economy which, in your belief, we can rest our recovery on?
1: Well, Craig, China still um, is a a central player and a central um, source of our our major exports, and uh, whilst agricultural exports are important, what's more important in, in terms of our the drivers of our exports uh, from Australia are uh, China's demand for our bulk commodities, um, iron ore, coal, and LNG, and also uh, the demand for our newly emerging export-oriented uh, or export drivers, uh, tourism and educational services. And so a rupture with the, uh, with the Chinese that leads to a, a drying up of trade with that country, at least in the short term, is, is very important to Australia. To date, notwithstanding the, um, the political uh, problems that we've had uh, with, with China more recently, the demand for our uh, bulk commodity exports is still pretty strong out of China. And that's been one of the positives for uh, the Australian economy today. Uh, the demand for iron ore, coal, and LNG, notwithstanding the falls in prices for those, uh, those uh, for, for coal and uh, and uh, LNG because of uh, dropping commodity prices more generally, uh, are still being relatively strong out of China. And that's likely to continue, given that the Chinese uh, are going to be forced to support their economy with fiscal stimulus that's going to increase uh, infrastructure spending and increase the demand for steel and consequently iron ore and coal. Uh, where we've been hit badly, though, is in tourism and educational services with the closure of our borders and the end, you know, the end to uh, the tourist trade, effectively, in Australia during this period of lockdown. And the, the complete drying up of foreign student numbers that are dominated at the moment by China with, uh, with an, another strong sort of source of demand from India, which is also closed up at the moment. So so there's sort of, it's not as positive for us, obviously, as the GFC. Uh, to date, we haven't had the worst of the effects in so far as all commodities have been holding up, but we are being hit by these newly emerging industries of, uh, of, of tourism, educational services drying up. In terms of us going forward, I think it what, what we saw over the last... Uh, at least 20 to 30 years has been a build out of uh, our bulk commodity sector, our mining sector. And so that has really um, been the driver of uh, Australian growth to a large extent and particularly to our export growth. And Australia, as a small open economy with a small population, relies heavily on on foreign investment coming in to be able to fund uh, the industries which uh, which which lead to our our high level of uh, per capita income. And because we're reliant on foreign investment, we're also reliant on devoting some of our output to uh, foreign uh, demand to generate foreign dollars, foreign currency in which to pay uh, our foreign investors their dividends and their interest bill and whatnot. So it is a requirement of the Australian economy to remain an open economy, to have strong export sectors. And as we've moved into sort of a more um, mature phase of the mining sector, uh, where that is sort of like maxing out, we now need to look to other sectors in the Australian economy that can also generate export dollars. Now, in Australia, we have probably four or five industries which have true international comparative advantage. Agriculture and mining are amongst those. The others are tourism, educational services, the exporting, particularly of tertiary, Uh, education, uh, supplying that to foreign students, Um, parts of uh, biotechnology, biomanufacturing within the health sector, and parts of high-tech manufacturing. And it's those industries we really need to encourage going forward in order to help us uh, generate foreign uh, export dollars. Now, at the moment, Tourism and educational services are still heavily dependent on China, but there's nothing, there's no reason why those two sectors cannot also be attractive to uh, to con- to consumers outside of China. As I said, educational services are very, a very, have a very strong customer base within India, for example, at the moment. There, as the other parts of Asia, uh, middle income earning Asian countries continue to grow and continue to become. Uh, increase their incomes per capita, then those two sectors, tourism and educational service, should also find appeal with those um, those countries as well, help us diversify a little bit away from China.
0: And of course, Matthew, in some ways, the way that we deal with this um, current uh, health crisis as a nation is going to help support those really important emerging uh, industries particularly tourism educational services uh, you know for when we, we yeah, and the, the biotechnology
1: um, within health so that's yes. a very important there's a and there's a very important nexus between those those industries too because by by encouraging tourists and and, um, and students to come to australia it also uh, makes them aware of the opportunities that exist within the healthcare sector uh, and, and within manufacturing as well
0: Yeah, wonderful. Um, You mentioned earlier, um, you know, some of the key learnings, um, for example, from the health crisis of the 1918 flu pandemic. And in the midst of this crisis, I think we've also seen some of the learnings from the GSE by the central banks and governments uh, being really swift in their responses uh, around policy, such as the Fed's fallen angel policy to enable companies to really shore up their balance sheets. I think we've seen some unprecedented capital raisings over the last few weeks. And in Australia alone, the big four banks have added around $5 billion in new provisions for their balance sheets. Matthew, are there any other key factors that you're looking at going forward when you're trying to map out the future of the Australian and global economy's um, reaction to this crisis?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, when we look outside of Australia, or when we look at, at the global economy and we look at the way in which governments are responding to this um, crisis, I think we can, we can see... Um, a dichotomy across uh, across various economies. And one of the things, at least in the near term, that we're looking very closely at, by near term I mean over the next six to 12 months, uh, is the way in which various governments are responding to uh, the, or the way in which the governments are respecting or, or not respecting the epidemiology of the, of the crisis. So the problem that governments are facing at the moment is this trade off between having to lock down the, the economy and, and you know, cause a tremendous damage and hardship through economic lockdowns on the one hand, and that leads to the desire to reopen the economy versus the, the health um, side of things, that the, the implications for too swift an opening uh, to the, uh, the, the spread of the virus. And so you've, you've got Countries, I think, that are respectful of the epidemiology and trying to find a mix between uh, the health consequences and reopening, and those that are are less respectful of the epidemiology and opening um, the with um, uh, putting opening the economy as a as a greater um, preference to uh, to health. And I think one of the things that worries us at the moment is what's happening in the US. So if you look at the US uh their daily infection rate is still running at its peak level it hasn't been rising for about a month but neither has it come down so they are still extremely vulnerable to a second wave of infections yet they are pursuing a a reopening of the economy which is which is neither coordinated across the states nor Is it in a situation where they have, in our opinion, adequate testing and adequate uh, contact surveillance, which enables you to control clusters as they break out? So I think if I looked across the global economy, the risk uh, in the US of a second wave of infection, particularly as we pass into the northern uh, hemisphere winter in uh, November and and December, is very high. Uh, so, so that's one of the key uh, issues that we're we're concerned about. So, in our modelling, we do um, have as a downside scenario second wave infections, and that is one of the key risks that could drive the global economy into depression. The second risk that we're seeing emerging, and you alluded to it earlier, with the the uh, problems that the Australian government's currently facing with China over squabbling about the origin of the uh, of the COVID uh, virus is is a is a is a decoupling, a very hard decoupling of the Chinese economy from uh, the global economy. Uh, Compared to, to say, what happened in 1910 in that influenza outbreak then, one of the key differences between the global economy now and then is the much tighter integration of the global economy across geographic uh, regions and the tight uh, integration of financial markets, which makes uh, the the, what happens in china much more important to the global economy uh, than it, it ever has been before and if we see a hard decoupling of china particularly of australia that will have significant uh, uh, economic consequences so being able to navigate this geopolitical issue is going to be is going to be very important not only for the global economy but particularly for the australian economy and finally on that point a, a, a development that concerns us um, that's occurring in the US at the moment is the pivoting of the Trump administration uh, towards a strategy of, of blaming China for the uh, outbreak of COVID to, in some sense, one could argue, to, dis- to distract from their own um, sort of piecemeal approach to, uh, to COVID 19. But I think more importantly, what's happening. More recently, is a pivot of the Trump administration towards a a narrative of using COVID to drive forward the more isolationist view of the uh, U.S. economy. They're now talking about using this as an opportunity to bring um, manufacturing jobs back into the U.S. Uh, to to in fact, what they're saying is let's not worry too much about the unemployed in the service sector that's largely being hit in the US as it is in Australia, but rather let's pivot away from uh, the service sector, bring back jobs into manufacturing sector um, and tilt the economy back into to manufacturing. What that means is a more isolated uh, US, not just from China, but potentially from the rest of the world, as they, and it leads to a to a scenario where there's potentially more um, trade barriers put in place in order to build a manufacturing sector in the US, and that that too would be quite a negative for the global economy.
0: So you're really describing what's, you know, boiling up to being a a more complex than normal uh, investment environment for our institutional investors, Matthew. And when I look at sort of scenarios like cash rates being extremely low and probably going to stay that way for quite a while. And whilst you've got the US markets, you know, reasonably flat over the year um, and certainly up over the last month or two, where should investors be looking to be focused right now? Um, you mentioned before this you know, non-coordinated approach, the US approach to COVID, and one could argue that's a, almost a Republican versus Democratic state argument, but where should investors be looking uh, with regards to, or focused with regards to their portfolio construction going
1: forward? Well, I mean, it's very difficult, I think, to be um, certain and 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 certain uh, about the future in terms of uh, investing strategies at the moment, um, there are a lot of unknowns and a a lot of um, possible uh, scenarios to uh, to unfold. I think if I look beyond the uh, the next six to twelve months, though, and I think for more in terms of themes that will most likely Evolve uh, going forward. Uh, once we start to exit the, co- you know, the, the height of the COVID slowdown, will be that we enter into another period of very low interest rates, and in fact, we've got another leg down in the lower for longer um, uh, interest rate story. And I think that we're also going to be in a world where the potential growth rate of the global economy is lowered, probably for a number of years, perhaps up to a decade. What we're seeing at the moment, the risk, the, the outcome of uh, policy responses at the moment, both in terms of low interest rates, provision of, um, of debt facilities by central banks and the commercial banking sector, as well as uh, government fiscal policy, is an increase in indebtedness of both the private sector and the government sector. So undoubtedly, we're going to exit this uh, the COVID period with high levels of debt, higher than what we had post the GFC. And one thing the GFC taught us is that high level of indebtedness takes a long period of time to unwind, and so as governments Businesses and household sectors seek to repair their balance sheets um, going forward out of the COVID uh, period. Uh, that's going to weigh against the demand for goods and services, and it's going to weigh against the demand for investment. So, central and that 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 will uh, feed back in, I think, into a, a dampening of potential growth rates of the global economy. That itself will dampen uh, cash flows to, to all assets, I think. Uh, so returns across all assets will come down. Now, at the same time, central banks will be in a very weak position or won't be able to raise interest rates uh, from where they they currently sit, their lower bounds, we think, for probably five years. And one of the reasons why they won't be able to is any rise in interest rates will... We'll, um, make it even more difficult for private sector and governments to be able to uh, repair balance sheets. So the consequences of a sharply rising interest rate is going to be uh, catastrophic, I think, for, for, uh, for, for businesses, for households, and for governments. So interest rates being low just for that reason will extend for a long period of time. If you think about what that means for investors, if you're an institutional investor looking to secure the retirement incomes of your members, then you're faced with investing in, a, say, a traditional balance fund, which might contain anywhere up to 40 or 50% in fixed income. Uh, you're going to be receiving interest rates uh, below 1%. It's not going to be enough to meet the uh, the return targets demanded by members, and I think that's going to be Lead to another wave of search for yield, where where uh, institutional investors are pushed to look for higher yield. But in a world where uh, risk assets, equities, other risk assets, those the returns to those assets or the cash flow in particular those to those assets will be lower than uh, what we had previously previously expected because of the impact, the more enduring impact of COVID. So the pricing of risk is going to become more problematic. So what investors I think are going to have to to, to become is far more discretionary about the type of assets that they invest in. I think investing in in just broad asset classes like infrastructure or, re, or real estate, it's going to have to become more selective. You're going to have to um, be be more have more paid more attention, there's going to be a higher premium on those assets which can have a have a better chance of guaranteeing income generation and cash flow. So act managers which uh, have deep experience in understanding uh, uh, individual assets within, within the various asset classes, they will be forced to show their value added. It will be up to those um, managers to be able to assist institutional investors in, in correctly um, allocating to those assets which best meet the requirements of stability uh, in income streams and stability in return in a world where you're going to have really low interest rates and potentially lowish growth as well.
0: Thanks, Matthew. It certainly sounds like an environment going forward where it's potentially going to favour the active over the passive. Um, Thank you for such a a stimulating conversation today. We did cover a lot, um, not only the Australian economy, the global economy, but also the implications for markets. And if you would like to read more on the work from our economics team, we release a weekly economic brief, which is available on our website, QIC.com, but also on our LinkedIn site each Friday afternoon. Matthew, I look forward to catching up with you again next Friday. Thank you for listening. Please watch out for our next podcast available under QPod on the Apple Podcast app. And with our restrictions starting to ease in Australian states uh, going forward, please have a more social week ahead.